But while we were gone, uh, I've been thinking a lot about this issue of how do we interpret the Bible. Biblical interpretation is something very important to us today, but it's not a new issue. And so the church history class for the next couple of weeks will be focusing on today some history of biblical interpretation. Next Sunday, how the Old Testament came about to be its own group of Old Testament scriptures that the church follows. And then the following week is Easter. We take a break for Easter, but then we come back and we'll look at, at some point, the accumulation of the New Testament scriptures. So that's what we're about. And it's a very important thing. And it was made very real to me when we were in Jerusalem. That's a picture of our son, Will. We're, he uh, and I got up one morning uh, while everybody else was was figuring jet lag out. And we made our way over to Machani Yehuda, which is the, the incredible marketplace in Jerusalem where everybody uh, uh, who lives in that general area goes to buy a lot of their, their foods and their, their, their things. Speaking of which... Uh, Becky and I did make a, a, a small, nothing big, sorry guys, but a, a, a small purchase for 850 of you that we have are having sent here and it has not arrived yet. Um, I, I, I loved you enough to get it, but not enough to haul it. So <laughs> it's being sent here and it's something that's going to fit in really well with what we're doing in church history. So I'm excited about that and, 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 uh, the, not that you got something. I'm excited about how it fits in. And so I'm looking forward to it. You've just got to keep coming to class or you will totally miss your chance for the freebie. Okay. I'm using a little carrot there to get you to class. So Will and I went to Mahana Yehuda to get some fresh rugula and some fresh nuts and some other things. And it was marvelous. I took this picture of him. And then we also went back on Friday, right before Shabbat, before Sabbath. And you could not get your way wedged through. I could not take a picture of Will on the street because everybody's bumping me so much. I couldn't. I mean, they're all in a furor to get their merchandise... Before Sabbath. Sabbath begins at sundown. Remember, in the Jewish concept of days, it begins at sundown. So, they are in a big rush because of the invocation of the Ten Commandments, among other places. Where in the Old Testament it says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock. Sojourner within your gates. Nobody, zip, nada. In fact, we have a niece, Randy and Catherine's daughter, Michelle, who, who also lives in Jerusalem. By the way, we ran the family 5K in Jerusalem. And Becky only beat me by five minutes. She can walk fast. Um, no, um, Michelle, on the other hand, decided instead of running the family 5K with the rest of us, she would run the half marathon and we would meet up with her later for breakfast to stuff our faces. After all, we ran three whole miles and, uh, and she ran the half marathon, but she was telling us about running through an Orthodox neighborhood training on a Sabbath day when some of the boys picked up rocks and threw them at her. Now, we're Christians. We believe in the Old Testament. We believe in the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. But how many of us are following numero cinco up here? I think it could be numero quattro. It's either number four or five. It depends on how you count them. You can count them differently, as bizarre as that may sound. Anyway, how many of us are following that? So what do we do? Do we say that part of the Bible doesn't count? How do we understand it? Well, let me go a different direction. 
Right now, I'm doing a critical read-through in anticipation of a critical write of Sam Harris's book, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason. Sam Harris is a fellow who's drawn great publicity and some might even say a, a level of monetary compensation by his proclamation that it, it, religious belief is an absurdity, it's antiquated, it's something for the ignorant masses that needs to be purged because there's no basis for it in truth. And we are too advanced a people to believe in anything like faith. And he says those who believe in religion and God are the ones responsible for all of the problems in the world. Witness the Islamic terrorist group ISIS. Witness the Christians or the Jews who are always thinking we are the right ones. As Pastor David said, we are the way. This morning, Jesus is the way through us. We understand that. And this idea of exclusivity, Sam Harris says, is the bane of all things good and civilized. Here's something he says. He turns to Deuteronomy 13, 7 through 10, and he quotes it. If your son or daughter says, let us serve other gods, you must kill him. Your hand must strike the first blow. You must stone him to death. Now that's from the Deuteronomy passage. From that, Sam Harris says the following. While the stoning of children for heresy has fallen out of fashion, you will not hear a moderate Christian or Jew arguing for a symbolic reading of passages of this sort. So how do we handle this passage? I got an email from uh, our son and uh, this, this morning for us, this afternoon for him, about a friend of his wife's who truly sold everything he had and gave it to the poor. Following the admonition of Jesus's instruction to the rich young ruler. Now, I don't want to embarrass anybody, but how many of you have sold everything you have and given it to the poor today? Oh, it was going to be a trick question. If you raised your hand, I was going to say, well, whose clothes are you wearing? <laughs> and yet we all read the Bible. We all see that passage where the rich young ruler says, Jesus, or Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? We put into a written lesson, but I didn't have time to cover when we were talking about the Gnostic movement. Marcion. Marcion was a heretic in the early church out of the Rome church, the Roman church, in the first to the second century. And he became well known for writing and teaching heretical statements, including... His claim that Jesus and the God of the New Testament are different than the God of the Old Testament. Now, he wrote, for example, a, a writing called The Antithesis, where he set out all of these distinctions between the two. The church got so upset with him, and once they stamped out his heresy, they basically burned everything that he'd written. But we know about it. Because other Christian writers wrote it up and said, this is Marcion, this was his teaching, this is why he was wrong. So we don't have the full thing, but let me give you some ideas of why he thought the God, little g, of the Old Testament was different than the God, big G, of the New Testament and Jesus. Here's his sample. The God of Genesis could not find Adam and Eve. Having to call out, where are you? Genesis 3, 9. But Jesus knew even the thoughts of men. Can't be the same God. Here's another one. The God of the Old Testament said, an eye for an eye 
But Jesus said, if someone strikes you on one cheek, turn to him the other also. Must be different gods. How else is he going to understand these Old Testament passages that seem to fly in the face of the New Testament? Now, if we are candid with each other, I think anybody who's spent much time thinking through much of the Bible will readily say, there's some stuff that's kind of hard to figure out how it fits. And I know some of you feel that way because many of you have emailed me or come up to me after class and said, okay, why don't we do this? Why do we do that? Great questions. And questions that find the, their, their answers first in our approach and understanding of how to interpret the Bible. Now, if this were going to be longer than the next 40 minutes, I would have time to tell you exactly how I believe we should be understanding the Bible. But you've got to come back for that and we've just got to do it through other times and you'll see it as we work through things. Instead, what I want to do is talk to you a little bit more church history today. And so today we're going to answer the question, how do we understand the Bible? By looking at least at one approach that scholars call the Alexandrian approach to biblical interpretation. Now, if by that you're thinking this is an approach to the Bible that Alexander the Great came up with, you would be wrong, but only by a few hundred years. It wasn't Alexander the Great's interpretation, but the interpretation that's associated with the city he founded called Alexandria, Egypt. In fact, he was buried there. Not that you can go see him there today. His body's been lost through the ages. But he was buried in Alexandria, Egypt. Alexandria was a town that, a city, that was one of the largest in the Roman Empire. Somewhere around third largest. It had one of the wonders of the ancient world, a lighthouse that was built. We don't have the lighthouse today, but here's the reconstruction of one artist. And uh, the, the geography of that uh, uh, reconstruction is at least accurate. By that I mean the harbor, the way it's shaped, and, and things like that. It was an amazing city. It was a huge city. And at the time of Jesus, it was a city that had a very educated population. The largest library in history up to that point in time was in Alexandria. If we're to follow some of the tradition of a letter called the letter of Orestius, then we are to understand that it was one of the rulers from Alexandria who commissioned Jewish scholars to translate the Old Testament into Greek for the first time so that the library would have it. And that also became something that, that Greek Hellenized Jews, I should say, could use. So you've got Alexandria. It's a hotbed of intellectual and religious content. In fact, you can go back and in the first century in the time of Jesus, we have writings that show there were Buddhists already in Alexandria. You've got Buddhists. You've got Jews, you've got Christians, you've got Christian Jews, you've got pagan Romans, you've got pagan Egyptians, you've got pagan Greeks, you've got philosophers, you've got all sorts of intellectual people. And the one that I want to talk to you about is a Hellenized Jew. Now, what were the Jews doing there? Look at the map here. I put uh, the star about where Jerusalem is. Except it's not that big in the picture. Jerusalem, 
to Alexandria is a distance of about 300 miles. Israel and the Israelites and Judah were always going to Egypt when there was trouble. So it's not surprising that you not only had Jews there, you had a lot of Jews there. There is further south in Egypt, up the Nile, there is a a temple that was built, a Judaistic temple that was built. For one sect of Judaism at Elephantine. And so you've got, you've got a massive Jewish population. And among those was a fellow named Philo of Alexandria. Born around the sea in a, in a thing like that. It's for the Latin Kirka, which means around. Born approximately 20 BC. Died approximately 50 AD. Now put this into your brain. And, and think of how does this fit in with what we know. Jesus is born probably around 4 or 3 B.C. If you're saying, wait a minute, that's how can Jesus be born 3 or 4 years before Christ? Because the fellow who figured it out, Dionysius Exegus, Latin for Dennis the Short, the guy that figured it out didn't do a good job. And he mixed it up. But cut him some slack. He's been dead for 1,400 years and we don't want to speak poorly of the dead. (laughs) So Jesus is born about 2 to 4 B.C. Jesus dies around 30 A.D. Paul is converted. Fairly soon, by the 50s, when Alexandria, or Philo of Alexandria dies, Paul's already been on a mission trip. He's already setting up churches throughout the Mediterranean area. And the gospel is spreading. Paul writes the letters to the Corinthians in the 50s. So what does this have to do with us? Philo is a Jew. You don't find a direct reference to him in the New Testament, though you do find references to his family. He came from a very wealthy family, well-connected family. In fact, in the book of Acts, you'll see Paul presenting to one of Philo's in-laws. Got to read the lesson, figure out where. Now, so Philo... In fact, some in the early church actually think that Philo may have become a believer before he died. But we don't really know. We do know that the Christian churches who saved the writings of Philo, wasn't really Jews that did. But when we read Philo, Philo of Alexandria is really big on symbolism in the Old Testament. He would figure out how the Old Testament was symbolic and use that. So let me give you an example. I brought some Philo with us. If we can go to the Elmo. Let's uh, take a look here. Can you all see? Is that big enough to see? This is Kirsip Lake's translation. It's uh, stilted English for those of us who live in Texas. I think, Vicar, you will do fine with it. This is Philo commenting on Genesis where Cain slays Abel. And after Cain slays Abel, Cain is sent out and a curse is put on Cain. And Cain says, Lord, if I go out, someone's going to kill me. And the Lord says, "Uh, if Cain is cursed, then anyone who kills Cain is cursed sevenfold. And this is what Philo tells us. He, I know someone says, you're marking on a library book. This is not a library book. This is mine. He, it continues, that slayeth Cain shall loosen seven punishable objects. Your ESV will say, will be cursed sevenfold. Genesis 4.15. Now that Genesis 4.15 is an ad. The, it was not numbered at that point in history. So that's so we can find it. What meaning this conveys to those who interpret literally? I don't know. 
He says, I don't know how you can interpret that literally. Because we don't know what the curse was. So we don't know what seven times the curse would be. There's nothing to show what the seven objects are. Nor how they're punishable. Nor in what way they become loose and unstrung. They afflict, if you will. We must make up our minds that all such language is figurative and involves deeper meanings. It would seem then that the thought which Moses desires to convey is of this nature. The irrational side of the soul is divided into seven parts. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, speaking, and begetting, offspring, breeding. Were a man to do away with the eighth part, which is the mind, which is the ruler of these, and is here called Cain, then he will paralyze the seven also. Here's what he's saying. Cain represents the mind. And if you think of your senses, touch, smell, taste, hearing, sight, procreation. He comes up with seven. He says they're all controlled by the mind. Cain. If you destroy Cain, the mind then those seven senses are running rampant, uncontrollably, and they'll never be the highest and best they can be. Moral to that story is, don't destroy your mind, take care of it. Because by it, you will be a better person. Okay. That is a symbolic reading of the Old Testament. Philo was not a one-off he was not a weirdo, a, a strange duck. He was not a, an aberration. There was a whole school of thought of which he was very normative. This is what, this is how they were trying to address some of these questions of, gee, what do we do with these Old Testament passages? Now, in comes the Christians. How do the Christians read these Old Testament passages? What do the Christians do when they come across them in Alexandria? Let's say you're a Jew and you're brought up under the teaching of Philo and you think, oh, this is all symbolic. And now all of a sudden, bam, you see that Jesus Christ physically died and was physically resurrected, ascended to heaven and will come again. And you understand you've been saved by Jesus' sacrificial death on your behalf and you trust in him and heaven's road and heaven's gates are your future. Now, you've been reading the Old Testament a la Philo. How do you read the Old Testament as a Christian? What do you do with it? Well, this is really interesting. Tell them. Tell them about Apollos. Oh, well. Tell them. Uh, are you going to tell them about Apollos or not? <laughs> Let me tell you about Apollos. Just occurred to me. There's a New Testament book. This is a freebie if you're not interested in this. Go to sleep. Don't snore. Your neighbor will wake you up when I'm through. The book of Hebrews is a fascinating book. It's well worth everyone's reading and study. Look at how it starts out. It starts out so cool that this is actually painted in our chapel. Over the section of our chapel that has all the Old Testament paintings. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And then he goes through, the, the author of Hebrews goes through 
And he starts talking about it in some ways. And if you read through it, you'll see him associating Jesus as the great high priest. You'll see him talking about Jesus being in the priestly order of Melchizedek. You'll see him talking about how the Sabbath rest is something that we are to enter into. That now we have the rest of God because Jesus has completed his work and ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of the Father. He talks about how the blood of Jesus serves as the sacrificial blood and is the meaning of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews takes the Old Testament in a very Alexandrian way and explains the imagery as finding fulfillment in Jesus. Now, nobody knows who wrote the book of Hebrews that's alive today. Scholars make educated guesses. Some say Paul. But one educated guess that a lot of people have is Apollos. And you may be thinking, Apollos? You look Apollos up in the, in the Bible. You look up Apollos. You go to your index in the back. And you say, Apollos, Apollos. Apollos. Ah, Apollos. Here we go. Apollos. Well, not a lot on Apollos, is there? You got a little Acts 18.24. You got, oh, that 1 Corinthians passage. I remember that one where Paul says, why are you dividing up? Some say I'm of Paul. Some say I'm of Peter. Some say I'm of Apollos. Yeah, yeah, that's also where, where, where he says, uh, Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, and God gave the growth. But that's about it. How do you get from that, that Apollos wrote Hebrews? Is it just because we've got some fellow named Apollos and he didn't do anything else that we can read about except help the Corinthians? No, it's the one that I didn't read out loud. Acts 18.24. If we look at Acts 18.24, we are introduced by Luke to Apollos. And look what Luke says. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a Jew named Apollos, native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, fervent in spirit. He spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. Priscilla and Aquila better teach him the way. So here you've got, look at this. Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And this is a man who powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures, those are the Old Testament scriptures now, because we don't have the New Testament yet, that Christ, the Messiah, was Jesus. This is the passage that causes scholars to think that perhaps Apollos or someone like him wrote Hebrews. Because Hebrews is a writing of someone that could be a Jew from Alexandria who knew the scriptures well. Because it takes the Old Testament and shows that Jesus is the Messiah based upon those Old Testament readings. And so we've got this idea coming out of Alexandria that you read scripture in a symbolic manner and it enlightens and helps us understand things better. All right, now let's fast forward a little bit. We've got the Acts passage. I just read you about Apollos. Now I want to talk about the epistle of Barnabas. 
Barnabas, you're thinking, ah, Barnabas, that's the fella who was the missionary with Paul until they split up. Okay, that is who Barnabas is biblically. Who wrote the epistle of Barnabas, nobody's got any clue. Nobody knows. I mean, we we don't know it was written by Barnabas. We don't know it wasn't written by Barnabas. It seems to have been written in the 70s. Looks like it was written uh, in the first century because of its reference to Roman emperors. But then there's this other part where scholars think maybe it was a little later because maybe it's after the second Jewish rebellion. Who knows? But let's just figure that for, for general sake, we're looking at a Christian writing somewhere after most of the New Testament was written, except for the Gospel of John, the Revelation of John, and the Epistles of John. So it's an early writing for the church. Now, it's not part of New Testament Scripture. There is an argument that some in the early church thought it should be, But the church rejected that position. Most of the people who thought it should be were from Alexandria. We'll talk about that when we talk about how the New Testament was put together. But here you've got the epistle of Barnabas. And the epistle of Barnabas is really interesting. Now what I've done is I've brought the epistle of Barnabas for you. I want to read some of it with you. I want you to see how Barnabas also used the Old Testament and understood it in an allegorical, uh, symbolic way. And some of it, you look at it, you say, yes, that makes sense. Some of you look at it and you say, no wonder that's not in Scripture. (laughs) And I'm going to insert a free note here. I don't know if any of you got to hear Pastor David's sermon this morning. He's doing the I am sayings of Jesus in John. And he was in John 14 this morning. It's really good. Nailed something that 90% of the preachers, I think, mess up. I mean, and he just stuck the landing. It was a 10. I pull out my cell phone. I'm texting him during his sermon. I felt really guilty, but I sinned. He'll get an email back from me saying, what are you doing texting me in the middle of the sermon, man? You missed the next 10 things I said. And I said, yeah, I know, but that one was so good, man. So good. Anyway, I digress. I can't tell you how many preachers are seduced by the, 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 the charm, the, 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 I'm not coming up with the word. They're lured by the siren song, if we'll use a classical example. They they, they will take an idea or something that they think or something that they believe or something they want to say and they'll find the Bible to find them a good story that they can use to try and prove their point. It's especially useful for, I did it one time uh, when uh, uh, I was 15. 14, I was speaking at a youth camp. Follow me in friendship was the title assigned to me. And I thought, okay, I'm going to give five good things that these kids can do in friendship. And then I've just got to find some Bible story where I can find those five in the Bible story. And I went and found David and Jonathan. Good story of friendship. I found my five and I taught it. But I had already written the whole class. I just had to find scripture that I could tack it onto to make it fit. Okay? Not saying it's a horrible thing to do. Not saying it's a bad thing to do. I'm just saying it's something we need to watch out for. Because you got to first understand scripture for what scripture says before you start trying to put into it what you want it to say. Okay? And that's the danger here. Now, y'all are ready for this. I'm going to read you the introduction. I want you to read with me the introduction to the epistle of Barnabas that was written by this nice scholar. Because now that you understand the Alexandrian school of thought, this is going to make so much sense to you. Whoops. Bam. Knocked that one over, didn't I? Okay. Okay. I'm getting a little bit off. Here it is. The document which is always known as the epistle of Barnabas is like First Clement, really anonymous. It's generally regarded as impossible to accept. 
the uh, tradition which ascribes it to the Barnabas who was a companion of Paul, but it's convenient to use that as a title. It is either a general treatise, that means a general written discussion, or was intended for some community in which Alexandrian ideas prevailed. Now, if you just read this before class, you might be saying, I don't even get that. But right now you're reading it thinking, oh yeah, that's pretty obvious. That's the things you learn. Though it was not, it's not possible to define its destination or the locality from which it's written with any greater accuracy. It's just clear it's Alexandrian. Its main object is to warn Christians against a Judaistic concept of the Old Testament. And the writer carries a symbolical exegesis. Exegesis means what you're culling out of the text. Okay? As far as did Philo. See, y'all know all of this. Indeed, he goes farther than Philo. Because Philo would at least say that there's literalness to the text as well, generally. And apparently denies any literal significance at all to the commands of the law. The literal exegesis of ceremonial law is to him a device of an evil angel deceiving the Jews. They didn't take it literal at all. You're saying, well, what does this mean? Well, let's look at some samples. Here's a good one that uh, I think we would like. The prophet says that he was placed as a strong stone for crushing. Here's the passage. Lo, I will place for the foundations of Zion a precious stone, chosen out, a chief cornerstone, honorable. And it says, he that hopeth on it shall live forever. Oh, you may know that passage. I lay in Zion, a perfect stone, a cornerstone, never be shaken. Is then our hope on a stone? God forbid. He means that the Lord placed his flesh in strength. In other words, the incarnation, Jesus Christ. And he placed me as a solid rock. So the cornerstone is not a real cornerstone. That's symbolic for Jesus. And we would say, amen. Here's another one. When the Israelites are taken out and given to the land of milk and honey. This is what he has to say about that. What does the other prophet Moses say? Moses says, Lo, thus saith the Lord, enter into the good land which the Lord swear that he would give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And inherit it, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he goes off on a discourse of what that means. We have to flip a few pages to get to it. But when he says it, he says uh, down here, we then are they whom he brought into the good land. That's really us, the believers, the church. And what is the milk and the honey? Well, a child is first nourished with honey and afterwards with milk. So we're being nourished on the faith of the promise and by the word shall live and possess the earth. It's the, the food, the spiritual Nurture that we get from the Lord. That's the way he understands it. Now here's a weird one. You know, we got to throw in the weird ones. Because there's a moral to this. Make it a little easier to read. Abraham, in Genesis 14, 14, it says that Abraham had 318 men that were born into his household. Then later on in Genesis 17, it says that, that Abraham circumcised those men. All right. So he's writing about that. He says, it says Abraham circumcised from his household, 18 men and 300. See that? 18 men and 300. What was this knowledge that was given to him? Notice he first mentions the 18 and after a pause, the 300. 18 is I, which equals 10, and that's a long E. It just looks like an H. Sorry, I can't change history. H, Ada, the Greek Ada. It looks like an H, but it's an actual E. And you have 
Jesus. Now, you may be saying, what? Jesus' name in the Greek starts out with the letter I and then the, letter, the long E, the Ada. So those are the first two letters in the name of Jesus. They also happen to be the Greek numerals for 18. Here, we'll do this for you real quick. So if you do Roman numerals, a Roman, that's what? Good. Um, that is good. Man, y'all are brilliant. Oh, I'm sorry. I got carried away. Um, now, if we were going to do Greek, the Greek didn't use the Roman alphabet. They used the Greek alphabet. So you've got the letter. Well, let's do it this way. I'm going to do it in small Greek letters because that's what most of us know. Okay, so you've got um, uh, an I. Whoops. Well, they didn't dot their eyes. Okay, I'm sorry. I've been on vacation. Man, it was great. Uh, all right, you've got the Greek I, the Iota. And then you've got the Greek Eta, which looks kind of like an N. Now, I stood for the number 10. And Iota, I mean, uh, the Eta stood for the number 8. And then the number 300 was the tau, the T letter. All right? So what this gentleman's saying is, this is the abbreviation of Jesus, because Jesus' name in Greek is an iota, an eta, a sigma, Jesus. All right? So he says, this is the 18 318 men circumcised, 318 men in Abraham's house. But it's set out in such a way that it's got eight, ten plus eight, which is going to give you Jesus. And then they put the 300, which is the tau, which is the shape of the cross. So in that Old Testament passage of Abraham circumcising 18 plus 300, you have Jesus on the cross as the deliverance. That's where he ends up. So he indicates Jesus in the two letters and the cross in the others. By the way, that also tells us he was working with the Greek Septuagint because that math doesn't quite work that way if you're using the Hebrew Old Testament. But hey, that was just what Moses wrote. Now, what about the dietary laws? Moses said you don't eat, a, you don't eat swine, pork, pig. Nor an eagle, nor a hawk, nor, hawk, nor a crow, nor any fish that has no scales on itself. That's why you don't eat shrimp and catfish. He included three doctrines in his understanding. Now, what does he mean by this? Skip down to verse 3. He mentioned the swine, the pigs, for this reason. You don't hang around or consort with swine, with men who are like swine. And he goes through all these dietary laws and he figures out how they're all symbolic. You just don't hang around with people who are, act like swine. That's the real meaning according to this epistle of Barnabas. Now, let me take it a little bit further. Let's roll forward and let me tell you, and we're almost through here, hang on. Clement of Alexandria, not the same Clement who wrote that Clement of Rome letter we looked at earlier. Clement of Alexandria ran the Alexandrian seminary. And around 180, 190, 200, he's writing from the seminary. And he's doing a bunch of this stuff too. I mean, it's really grown. It's really blossomed. And Clement was someone who had studied a lot of Greek philosophy, so he's using Plato. Plato taught that the soul is eternal, the soul never dies. And he brings that in to, to his understanding of, of heaven and hell. And, and, and he grabs this various parts of Plato and he says, it's okay to do it. Truth is God's truth regardless of where it comes from. But he starts reading scripture in this allegorical way that's very platonic. And then his, he dies and he goes away. But later on, 
a fellow named Origen starts running the seminary. Origen's famous. Uh, Melvin would have told you about Origen had he had time. I don't think you had time. But uh, Origen was famous because he was a heretic. He messed up on Jesus and the divinity of Jesus. Because he got so wrapped up in his symbolism, it led him down the wrong path. See, he was someone who said, Scripture's got three different ways you can read it. Just like a human is body, soul, and spirit, there's the body, soul, and spirit of Scripture. Body means you're just reading it literally. And body, by the way, is not too laudable. Spirit, I mean soul, means you're reading it on a higher level. And you're understanding it in an allegorical way. But then spirit is where you read the Old Testament and you understand it as its symbolism of Jesus and Jesus' relation with God. So aside from the fact he had problems with Jesus' divinity because he went through all of this stuff, he, he comes up with these scriptural ideas, some of which seem pretty cool, some of which seem outlandishly bizarre. But what does this have to do with us today? Because now we're going to the points for home. Well, I want to tell you one of the books that, that shouts out at me when I prepared this lesson is a letter that Paul wrote we call Second Timothy. Paul wrote it right at the end of his life. And it's like Paul's handing the baton to Timothy to run. And Paul's realizing that he's finished his race. He's fought a good fight. He's kept the faith and he's going to hand that baton to Timothy and Timothy's going to take the baton and run with it. The next generation. And Paul is very careful in this to have some very insightful information to Timothy about how Timothy should understand and teach scripture. And so those are good advice for us today. The first passage I pulled is where Paul told Timothy, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, to rightly handle the word of truth is not something Paul just says to do. But Paul says to do your best to present yourself to God as one who's doing it. You know, this is not just about me. Um, I had a conversation with someone, um, a Jewish friend of mine, when I was in Helsinki, Finland on Thursday over dinner. And he was saying that one of the things that struggle he struggles with is this idea of why God can let bad things happen if he's all-powerful. And I said, so in your mind, you think that God should tell... Um, all right, we've we, we got a case where a drunk driver runs over and kills this poor girl. A tragedy. And in your mind, God should not should have forced the man to stay sober. Or in your mind, God should have removed the car magically from the driveway so that he couldn't drive it. You know, God doesn't exist on our terms. God is God. And we are not God. And God has given us liberty and ability to do good things and liberty and ability to do bad things. Does that make God bad? No. That makes us autonomous. God's not a puppet master. God's not in the, he didn't, he's not a computer programmer. We're not the computer program. If if he were a computer programmer and all we were was a computer program, then yeah, it'd be his fault if we have a a software glitch. But we're free will and legal and 21. And we can do what we want to do. And it's the nature of the world he has set up. The good thing is, the goodness of God is seen that he doesn't leave us to our own devices. But he offers us an alternative. But we're to study. I said, you know, God is not the bellman who's in charge of bringing our luggage to our room when we want it. Well, God, 
I want this. I want that. Well, don't let this happen. Well, let that happen. No, the goal for the believer is not to make God the porter and the bellman who calls luggage for us. The goal for the believer is to say, I am on yours. I want to know where you want the luggage because I want to haul it. So I'm going to take this seriously. I'm going to take the study seriously. I mean, I, I, I was in Oxford for lunch with Alistair McGrath, who's coming to see us in October. I was uh, with on Wednesday, and 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 by the way, Melvin, he sent his best to you as well. Um, uh, and 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 in the process of it, I walked by where. In the street, a man was burned for translating the Bible into English 500 years ago. I'm going to, I mean, people gave their life for this. It's not going to be a coffee table book for me. I'm going to read it. I'm going to take it study seriously. Then Paul goes on to say to Timothy, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. It's profitable for teaching. It's profitable for reproof. It's profitable for correction. It's profitable for training in righteousness so that the man of God, the woman of God can be complete, equipped for every good work. This is not just interesting musings of spiritual concern. This is the holy word of God. And these people who just surreptitiously and cavalierly, like Sam Harris, write and say, Oh, the Old Testament so different than the New Testament. Nobody believes it and everybody's explaining it in a way. I just want to say, no, be serious about the study. Instead of being serious about trying to find out what's wrong with it, figure out what's right with it. Amen. And, and, and so I'm going to read it, but I'm going to apply what I learn. I want to study it. I want to apply it in your final point for home. It's a little bit long, but it's at the end of the passage in in 2 Timothy. Paul says, I charge you, Timothy. And I think you can put us in this as well. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, preach the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Because the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Boy, Paul was right. God help us. I don't want to be that. This is God's word. It's not mine. I'm not going to read into it what I want to read into it. I'm going to try to understand it for what God has to say. Can we pray together? Lord, I ask you to bless the class. I ask you to bless the teaching. I ask you to bless our our time studying your word. I ask you to bless those who are working to memorize 1 John. I ask you to bless us as a community of faith. And it is our prayer, Lord, that your word will transform our lives as it draws us not only to Jesus, but through Jesus to you. May your spirit who breathed out the word, Father, infuse us with understanding. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.